You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, Stonegate, we have been working through 1 Corinthians for the last few months now, and we're officially to the last section of this letter. And I I hope that the last few months have been as good for you as they have been for me. It has been so good for me to sit in this particular book. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, Paul has saved the best for last. Uh, Here we are in chapter 15, and this is one of the great chapters of the Bible. So we're going to spend this week and then the next two, three weeks total, just working through 1 Corinthians 15. And I would encourage you to to make it sort of, over the next couple of weeks of your life, just sort of your daily reading. I'm going to wake up every morning and just read through again 1 Corinthians 15, just so it can start to, you know, your heart can kind of start to marinate in it and get acclimated to it. It is one of the great chapters of the Bible. So I think you'd be so encouraged by it if you would do that. And so today we get the first 11 verses. And here's the goal for today. Stonegate, we get a chance to celebrate again the good news of Jesus. Okay, that's what the next few minutes are. It is a gospel celebration. That's what this text is leading us to do, is to celebrate the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. So so that's the goal. Now, here is my hope today. It's that you would leave today with a renewed sense of just how good the good news is. It is easy for us to lose sight of how good the good news is. And so my hope today is that, that Paul would re-amaze you with amazing grace. That, that's what this text is meant to do. That's the effect it's, it's meant to have upon us. So with that said, I, I want to work through this passage by giving you six truths about the good news of Jesus. Six truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, just to, to re-amaze our heart with amazing grace. Here's truth number one. The gospel is good news. Look at verse one, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now let's just think about that word gospel for a minute. You might underline that word in verse one there. That word gospel means Good news. If you cut that word to the core, what you're going to find in the middle of that word is good news, the great news, the best of news. That is what gospel means. The gospel means good news. Uh, It's such good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that William Tyndale once said, it makes a man's heart glad. It makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. That's how good the good news is. It's how good it is for your heart, for my heart, as it produces that in a human being, singing, dancing, leaping for joy. Good news really does change human lives, right? We all know that. We've seen these moments happen. Let me just put it in in an illustration for you. Imagine for a moment some POWs, right? Prisoners of war. They are behind razor wire. They are in a cage, right? They've got these ruthless prison guards that are abusing them each day. I mean, it's just a terrible environment. Uh, each day, a few of them die. I mean, just picture, picture that scene. Uh, they're starving to death. They're gaunt. They all look half dead. Some of them are dying. Uh, picture that scene. Now, imagine what happens uh, after the, the crew of POWs, after months of tinkering with a broken radio, uh, it comes to life. Inside of this prison camp, it it comes to life and they turn the dial and they hear news that American forces are just a couple miles away. Imagine what happens in that camp. Imagine the moment when these prison guards, abusive guards, look back inside the razor wire and they see these men laughing and cheering and banging pots and raising arms and just going nuts in there. 
I mean, what has happened? Now, think about what's happened in this moment. Nothing has changed inside the camp. They're still starving. They're still gaunt. Half of them are dying. I mean, just, it, it's still terrible inside the, the camp. But everything has changed inside their hearts. Friend, that is the difference good news makes in a human life. The gospel is good news, the best of news. Number two, the gospel is good news that God saves. It's good news that God saves. Look at verses one and two. Now, I would remind you, brothers, Paul says, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and then look at verse two, and by which you are being saved. Now, let's underline that word saved in verse 2. Let's just think about that word for a moment and what it tells us about the good news of Jesus. That word saved is implying that we are in grave danger. That's how you make sense of the word saved. You don't need rescue unless you're facing ruin. You don't need saving unless you're in serious trouble. Do Do you see the connection there? Anytime there is a saving There is automatically, because someone is being saved, serious trouble. Now, this is what the Bible affirms about our life. Apart from Jesus, every human being is in grave danger. It is more urgent danger, more serious danger than any other type of danger in your life. This is the human problem, this danger that we need saving from. So, So Paul, when he's working this out in Romans... He says it this way in Romans 1 through 3. Really, really the point of the first three chapters of Romans is all, all leading up to Paul saying, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That's his point in the first couple of chapters. This is, this is our condition apart from Jesus. We have all rebelled against the kind, gracious, caring God who made us. And because God is good and he's righteous, he can't just sweep that under the rug. God's got to do something with sin. Romans 6 shows us God's response to sin. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Death is God's judgment for sin. That's why, there, that's why death exists. It is God's judgment for sin. Now, when Paul says the wages of sin is death, he doesn't just mean that you're going to die physically, although that's part of the death he means. So it does mean that, but it means more than that. We will die physically one day because of sin. This is what sin has done. This is God's judgment for sin. But but even more than a physical death, it means that we will die spiritually and eternally. That we will perish apart from the presence of the Lord forever. That's what the wages of death, here's the wages of, of sin, it's death. That's what that means. And then in Romans 2, verse 5, Paul gives this shocking warning. Uh, Paul says that that every day that we live with a hard heart toward God, rebelling against God, every day that we do that, living apart from Jesus, that we're actually storing up more and more and more and more of God's wrath for our sin. Isn't that just sobering to consider? That, That every day we live, we're just storing up more of it. Maybe I could put it in a picture for you. Imagine that we are all living in the valley called sin. 
So, so we're all doing our life in the valley of sin. This is where you live. This is where I live. This is where every human being is born into this valley called the valley of sin. And on top of this valley, up at the top of it, there is this massive dam. And this dam is holding back the water of God's righteous wrath for our sin. It's holding back that water. But, but every day that we live in the valley of sin, we're sinning. We're doing what sinners do, right? We're not doing the things that God says do, and we're doing the things that he says don't do. We're, we're sinning. We're rebelling against God. And Paul is saying in Romans 2.5 that with each sin, we are adding to the, the amount of water, the, the amount of watery wrath that is being stored and held back by that dam. But the Bible is clear that there will be a day where the dam will break and the valley of sin will be flooded by the water of God's wrath. The Bible could not be more clear in that. And when the dam breaks, it's too late to make rescue plans. It's too late to like grab the boat after the dam breaks. It's too late in that moment. When the dam breaks, everyone in the valley of sin will be eternally ruined by the wrath of God. Isn't that, that is so sobering. And I know anytime I talk about the wrath of God in a moment like this, I feel a certain way because I know that talk like this doesn't land great on sort of 21st century American ears. Uh, R.C. Sproul was right when he says, the great myth of the 20th century is that there is no wrath in God. And I think he's right when he says that. And that's a myth. That is not the biblical God. If your God does not have wrath for sin and anger for sin, you just don't have the biblical one. You've got one that you have made up. But, but the God of the scriptures is a God who is just and righteous and good. He's so good and so just and so righteous that he has to punish sin. And it's God's wrath being this serious. Like one day it's going to sweep through the valley of sin and eternally ruin everybody. God's wrath is so serious, and it's because it's so serious that the word saved makes sense. Friend, this is what we're being saved from. This is why our need for saving is so urgent. It's because our danger is so grave. Our problem is so serious. Welcome to the reason the gospel is such great news, right? We're all perishing in the valley of sin all on the way to being eternally wrecked by the wrath of God. But, but, but God does something. God comes in and he rescues, he saves. The gospel is good news that God saves, amen? That this is the good news that we get to celebrate. This is the good news that makes a man's heart glad. It makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. The gospel is good news. It's good news that God saves. Here's the third thing I want you to see. The gospel is good news that God saves through substitution. Through substitution. Look at verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance. So there's nothing more important in our lives than the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died, and you might underline these three words, for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
If you want to summarize the good news of Jesus in four words, my t-shirt gives it away. Jesus in our place. That is the four-word summary of the good news of Jesus. What was his became ours. And what was ours, all of our sin became his. It's substitution. So think back uh, with me to the valley of sin, right? There's this dam that is overlooking the valley. It's holding back the water of God's wrath. One day, uh, the, the... tsunami of God's watery wrath is going to break through the dam and, and ruin us all. But, but God saves. He saves us from his watery wrath. But the word substitution tells us how God saves. How does God do that saving work? He does it this way, by sending his son Jesus into the valley of sin to stand in our place. He saves through substitution. He's saved by sending his son, his son Jesus to live a perfect life. Everywhere you have fallen in your life, failed in your life, sinned in your life, Jesus has perfectly stood, perfectly obeyed. So Jesus lived a perfect life. On, on a Friday a few thousand years ago, he was taken to a hill outside of Jerusalem and, and there on that hill, he was nailed to a tree and there he was slayed. He was cut down. He was crushed for your sin and for my sin. On that Friday, the the water of God's wrath broke into the valley of sin. It came cascading down into the valley, but rather than crushing sinners, it crushed God's son. That's how we're saved, through substitution. When the water of God's wrath broke, Jesus stood between the wave and the rebels, between us and and it, he absorbed every last ounce of God's wrath for your sin. He drank every last ounce of that watery wrath. This is what Paul means in verse three when he says, Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die. No, he died for something in our place, for our sin. Uh, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 to say it like this. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That that is talking about the substitution that takes place in our saving. And here's the substitution. What was ours, our sin, became his. Our sin gets put onto the shoulders of Jesus. And on the other hand, what was his, his perfect record of righteousness, his, his lifelong obedience, what was his now becomes ours. That's the substitution that saves. On the cross, God treated his son like a sinner so that he could treat sinners like his son. That's what it's required for you to be saved. Jesus got the death that we deserve. He got the wrath our sin deserves. And we get the warm welcome that Jesus deserves. That's the substitution. The gospel is the good news that God saves through substitution. It's Jesus in our place and us in Jesus's place. Uh, The Puritans, um, they collected a bunch of their writings and put them in a little devotional called the Valley of Vision. I I just love it. It's just a bunch of Puritan pastors. They've got their stuff and they put it in this little devotional. And, And there's one of those called Love Lusters at Calvary. In other words, if you want to see love, 
Here it is. It's at Calvary. Hey, I'm going to read this little excerpt for you. This is, this is showing us the substitution that took place in a, in a person's saving. That God saves through substitution. They, they say it this way. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Do you see it? He got what we deserve. We get what he deserves. He cast off uh, he was cast off that I might be brought in. He was trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. He surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. He was stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, thirsty that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, Entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song. He endured all pain that I might have unfading health. He bore a crown of thorns that I might bear a crown of glory. He bowed his head that I might lift mine. He experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. He clothed, he closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. And he, Jesus, the son of God, expired that I might live forever. Amen? This is how God saves. It's through that substitution. Fourth thing I want you to see about the good news of Jesus the gospel is good news that is historical. It's historical. Now, some of us are here and, and you're hearing me say crazy things, right? Like, Jesus is God. And God and his son became human. And he lived perfectly. And he died. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. And you're looking at me thinking, y'all have lost your minds. And I empathize. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But, but here's the thing. All of us in this room, we, we have staked our life on that, on this being true. Now, if you're a skeptic and you're like, listen, man, I hear you, but you're still crazy. If, if you feel that, then verses 5 through 8 are written for you. They're, they're written for the skeptic. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, and he appeared to Cephas. He's talking about the risen Jesus. Jesus, busted out of the tomb on the third day, that, that risen Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 500 of them, the risen Jesus, most of whom are still alive. It's hard to tell a lie that sort of passes the test when you got 500 people that could say, nope, I didn't see the resurrected Jesus. He appeared to 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. James was Jesus's half-brother. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. Four times in these verses, Paul is saying, the resurrected Jesus appeared to people. People who would later go on to die for that resurrected Jesus. And in, and in saying that, that Jesus is, the resurrected Jesus is appearing to people, Paul is, is saying to us, this is, the resurrection of Jesus is an historical reality, that, that it actually happened in history. There was a man named Jesus. People saw him. They knew him. He had brothers. He had sisters. He, he, 
He was with people, right? And that resurrected Jesus, or that Jesus, he lived, he died. And then on the third day, he came out of the grave. Paul is saying, this happened. People saw this go down. Now, if you're investigating Jesus, right? If you're skeptical of all this and it just all sounds crazy, I just want to make sure you start right here at the center of everything with the resurrection of Jesus, with this question. Did Jesus live, did he die, and did he walk out of the grave? The answer to that question can change everything about your life, everything about it. It did for James, right? James is Jesus' half-brother. And uh, when we meet James in the Gospels, uh, he's out on Jesus. And I don't, I don't blame James for being out on Jesus. Uh, I have two older brothers, and I just sometimes imagine me being James, and uh, one of my brothers comes to me, and he's like, uh, Rodney, been wanting to tell you this for a while. Been nervous about it. But today's the day that I have to tell you, um, I'm God. I mean, imagine that moment. If, if you're James, what are you saying back to Jesus? No, you are not God. You are crazy, right? That is essentially what James said to Jesus. He said exactly what I would say to my brothers. And do you know what changed James when he saw the resurrected Jesus? When he saw his brother come out of the tomb? That is what changed James. And friends, it can change you. It can change you. So make sure you start. If you're, if you're kicking the tires on this and investigating Jesus, start at the right place. Did Jesus live, die, and walk out of the grave? And just like it changed James and Paul and these 500, it can change you, my friend. It's historical. Number five, the gospel is good news that needs announcement. It has to be announced. Look again at verse one of chapter 15. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers. So we need to remind people of this. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that I spoke to you, that I, that I said to you. See, good news only becomes good news to people when they hear about it. When they hear that good news heralded. That's how good news actually becomes good news to, to people around you. And welcome to the role that Jesus has given his people to play. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, he has given you a role to play in his saving work of other people. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, just consider with me for a moment. In Midlothian, Maypearl, Mansfield, uh, Waxahachie, uh, you know, Cedar Hill, and just the South Dallas area, God has a whole slew of people that he is going to save. Right? So, so he's, he's, he's got them marked off. He set his affection on them. And Jesus is going to save these people. And then here is what God does. In his providence, he takes these people that he has marked off and set apart and said, I, I'm coming after them. He's taken those people and then he's taken his people. And then this week, here's what's going to happen. Th those people and these people, are, their lives are going to do this at the grocery store. And they're going to do this at the coffee shop. And they're going to do this at your workplace. And they're going to do this when your kid's playing soccer. And they're going to do this when you're sitting in that classroom by that person that, that you're sitting beside. All of these little divine moments are going to be happening where God is bringing people. He's going to rescue into people's lives that he has already rescued. And he is asking these people who have already been rescued to be a part of their saving work. 
And here's how we're a part of that saving work. What we live with our eyes open to God saving people. He loves to save people. And he loves to use normal, ordinary, common people like you and I. And this week, like today, tomorrow, God is going to be doing these things, these little divine appointments. And when he does them, we as God's people are committed to taking that bold, risky step of faith and opening up our mouths and talking about Jesus. Amen? This is what God is doing every day around here. And he's using every one of his people, any one of his people that will just live with their eyes open to that, that have enough courage to step into those moments that God is bringing people he's going to rescue into your life, the people that he's already rescued. So, Stonegate, can we just be a part of that work this week? Could, could we all just make this commitment right here before the Lord? Jesus, this week is your week. You bring me a person that, that you're at work in, rescuing. You bring me that person, and God, I will be faithful to step into that moment with you. Can we just all say that to Jesus right now? God, I, I am ready. My eyes will be open this week, oh God. Uh, we all do a who's your one around here. That's just a simple way for us to talk about and encourage one another toward this rescuing work, toward playing our role. Uh, that we would find one person in this quarter of the year Pray for them and pursue them. Open our mouths and talk about Jesus with them. We're one month into this quarter right now. So if you haven't taken that step toward them, maybe it's getting lunch with them, whatever that is, this is your moment right now to feel just a nudge from the Lord to take that step toward them. The good news of Jesus has to be announced. And then here's the last one, number six. The gospel is good news that calls for a response. It calls for a response. The gospel is the greatest news in the universe. It announces the great news that God saves and he saves through substitution, through Jesus and Jesus alone by sending his beloved son Jesus to stand in our place. God saves through substitution. This is what it's announcing. But that good news requires a response. And Paul shows that response in verse 11. Paul says, whether then it was I or they, he says, so we preach and so you believed. There's the response the gospel requires. One day, every human being will find themselves before the risen Jesus, the one who will judge everything. We're all going to find ourselves before him. And on that day, there will only be two groups of people, only two. And those two groups will not form around race. They will not form around wealth. They will form around response. They'll be determined by response. There will be those in one group who have received the good news of Jesus. Paul uses the word believe. They have believed in the good news of Jesus. Uh, other times you see it as receive. Sometimes you see it as uh, uh, put your faith in Jesus. Uh, other times it's that you've repented of your sin and you've come to Jesus. All of those are saying the same thing. This is, this is the response that the good news of Jesus requires, that we would receive the good news of Jesus. And receiving the good news of Jesus means more than 
I agree with the good news of Jesus. I agree that God has sent his beloved son Jesus to live for me, die for me, and, and, and bust out of the grave on the third day. It's more than agreeing with those facts. It is when those facts about the good news of Jesus explode in your heart with life and vibrancy. That is the moment of belief. When these things spring to life in you, causing you to turn from your sin and to throw your life on the, on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's belief. And the fruit of that belief is that we can look at our life and we can see in us new desires. Like, I love Jesus. Like, that, that's, I love Jesus. That, that's actually in me now. We can see those desires and those new desires in us get us to a place of decision where we push all of our chips in, the entirety of our life in with the person of Jesus. That's what it means to receive Jesus. The other group will be those who reject the good news of Jesus. And rejection doesn't necessarily mean that you hate Jesus. You can admire Jesus like Jesus, think Jesus is an awesome guy and still reject Jesus. I think most often when people reject Jesus, it's not because they hate Jesus, it's because they've shrunk him. Jesus has just been shrunk down in their life into something that is small and insignificant. He's just not that big a deal. There's just other things in their life that are brighter and bigger and other things in their life that are more important. So they just, they never get around to Jesus because he's so small and insignificant in their life. I think that's most often what rejection looks like. He's just of little concern. But these are the only two groups, the receivers and the rejectors. And friend, your response to Jesus, it is the single most important thing about your life. Honestly, it doesn't really matter what else you get right if you get this wrong. It's the single most important decision. So, so don't miss what's at stake here. There is going to be a moment when the dam bursts. The water of God's wrath floods the valley. And for those who received Jesus, the, the, the Jesus who stood in their place, absorbing all of God's wrath for their sin, for those who receive Jesus, they will be rescued by Jesus on that day. But for those who reject Jesus, they just never get around to doing something with Jesus. For those who reject Jesus, they will be ruined forever. Those my friend, those are, are the only two options. It is rescue forever or ruin forever. My friend, Ray Ortland, he uh, summarizes the good news of Jesus in a way that we love to talk about it around here. He says it this way, three parts. Part one, we're all idiots, right? This is a way of saying we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is all of us. We're all idiots. Uh, part two, we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. The resurrected Jesus takes sinners and makes them something totally new. He opens up a whole new future for us. So we're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And part three, anyone can get in on this. Anyone. You can get in on this great news. You can. It is open to anyone who will do it. Anyone who will step into it. It's open to you. You can leave here today going from wrath to welcome.
ruin to rescue, death to life. Friend, make this your day. Make it your day. Would you bow with me? I want to give you a moment to allow the Lord to speak to you and talk to you. Have you made that decisive decision for Jesus? Has that happened in your life? There's nothing more important. It doesn't matter what else you get right if you don't get this right. If this is wrong, in the end, everything else will be wrong. Have you made that decisive decision for Jesus? Turning from your sin, throwing your life upon him. If not, friend, this could be your day. This, is, this could be your day where you, where you step across the line when you push your life in with the resurrected Christ. And if that's you, just there where you are, you can call out to the Lord. You can right now say, God, here is my life. Save me, rescue me. And God stands ready right now in this moment to do that rescuing work. So friend, call out to him, cry out to him. And for the rest of us, we get to enjoy communion now. And I love we're ending this part of our service like this, by, by reflecting upon the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. And let me remind you who communion is for. It's for those in relationship with Jesus. So if you haven't taken Jesus, take him before you come up and take communion. But it's also for those in right relationship with Jesus. So you, you need to examine yourself. You need to look over your life with Jesus to see if there's any unconfessed sin in you. And if there is, you need to repent of that sin before you come up and take communion. And then thirdly, it is for us to rejoice. The gospel is good news that God saves the church. And he saves through substitution, through the broken body of Jesus. There's your bread. Through the spilled blood of Jesus. There's your wine. That's how God saves the church. So it's a chance for us to celebrate, for us to, to reflect, for us to be re-amazed by amazing grace. So God, would you do that, that work of re-amazing our heart? God, would you do that work? And it's in the good name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.